So welcome back, everyone. And again, uh, good morning and good afternoon and good evening. And if you feel comfortable uh, putting your video on, I, I love to see everyone uh, as, I, as I speak and as we talk together. If, uh, if you don't have a, a bandwidth issue, that, that'd be great. I want to continue uh, in my explorations, for what for me is in the morning, with uh, the area that I opened up last week. I gave a talk last week, which when I was putting it on Dharma Seed, I entitled Doing and Not Doing in Meditation and Daily Life. This was a theme which came out of the uh, month and a day of retreat that I had in February and some of my own uh, personal explorations in the retreat. And so uh, this was uh, a home retreat where I did probably seven or eight hours of uh, a day of formal practice, a lot of time more informal practice. Uh, um, occasionally was in my car, stayed talking with uh, uh, several people uh, close to me. Uh, so different in some ways from a residential retreat and very meaningful. I also mentioned last time that I devoted about an hour and a half a day to um, what sometimes is called decluttering. And I noticed a lot of interest perking up when I mentioned that. And I said, how many would like to do a retreat on decluttering inside and outside? And how many of you would love that? Yeah, it's it, it, for many of us that that is uh, interesting and touches something deep. And it actually is related to to the theme. So I um, also during the retreat, I was exploring we might say as a core practice, letting a deep, open, awake awareness just be there without doing anything. And so for me, it was partly an exploration of being present, yet not, in a sense, meditating, not, quote unquote, doing anything and the challenges of that. And that kind of opened up to a larger question of uh, the nature of doing, the nature of not doing, how they're both important, how they come together. And so the themes that I explored last time were, first of all, the importance of doing in meditation, and of course in our lives. Uh, secondly, the importance of not doing in meditation, uh, especially. And then thirdly, I explored some of the conditioning around being, we might say, a doer, or we might say the conditioning around doing and identifying as a doer, which I think is very, very deep conditioning for most or all of us. We explored that. And then lastly, I gave a number of practices to really um, work with and explore 
all of those areas. And most of the people that I could see on the screen, when I asked, would you be interested in exploring these for the next week, raised their hands. So I hope that uh, we can have a, a lot of discussion for people to report what you found in your own exploration. So I'm going to try to leave a, a good chunk of time for, for discussion. So this week, I want to give a fairly brief review of the areas that I covered, add some more detail to uh, some of those areas, particularly to exploring the nature of the doer, the nature of doing, identifying as a doer, what that conditioning is about. And actually, I think how important it is to look carefully at it. And then I'll add a further area, which is related to the teaching that we can aspire in a way at the depths of practice to have our doing, in a sense, come out of not doing. And I'll talk about that and explain, or we could say a kind of not doing. And that's been actually some of that language we find in different traditions. So and I'll, I'll talk especially about how that appears in the Taoist tradition, where there is a word that many of you probably know, Wu Wei, usually translated as non-action. And then also, also some in, in Buddhist traditions. I'll talk about that. But it appears actually in multiple traditions. So that's what I'll explore. And then we'll have a chance to uh, talk together. And uh, before I go further into this, I thought I'd uh, mention one way to resolve this that I actually remember from when I was in college. And this was graffiti that was in my, uh, my dorm bathroom, on, written on one of the bathroom stalls. And some of you may have heard this, uh, this way of understanding this. So here it is. Here's the graffiti. To be is to do. Jean-Paul Sartre. To do is to be. Nietzsche. Dooby dooby do. Frank Sinatra. How many have heard that one? I think it appeared actually in a Kurt Vonnegut novel with different actors. Anyway, to be is to do. To do is to be. Dooby dooby doo. Okay. I don't. I don't believe that Frank Sinatra had a Buddhist practice, but many things were hidden in those days. Okay. Um, so first, a brief review, the importance of doing in meditation. And I had uh, quoted last time the last words of the Buddha. You know, and there are different translations of it. But one translation was, all things are impermanent. Work out your salvation with diligence. And sometimes that's been translated as, you know, uh, all things are passing 
work out your practice with continual care. In both of those, there's this emphasis on the importance of really continuing to practice. Be present. Be mindful. Pay attention. Keep your practice alive, not just a half hour a day, but all the time. Right? We've heard that. And so that could bring out, we might say, the dimension of practice as a kind of doing, an activity, uh, an intention, something to uh, continually coming back with, come back to. And uh, in a similar way, we know that wise effort is crucial part of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the eight uh, factors uh, in the uh, Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha gave. The, and it's especially the effort to be present. You know, in, in the actual teaching, it's talked about in four dimensions. It's to uh, actually stay out of difficulties, to know what to do if one gets in difficulties, to develop uh, skillful qualities and to keep them going. And, and so again, there's this uh, invocation of uh, effort to, to, keep, uh, to keep practicing. And we sometimes uh, focus in contemporary practice, we, we say, keep, you know, really very important to do your meditation every day, try to bring your mindfulness into things, and so forth. And so we have that very clear aspect on doing, on effort, as fundamental. And yet we could say that we also have an emphasis on not doing. And I I talked last time about, you know, we find very often the importance of letting go, which is a kind of not doing. Letting go of something that we're holding on to. That is crucial as well. And, you know, there's also the way that mindfulness, and this is something that I think is actually pretty important, mindfulness has both an active and a receptive dimension. There's the active dimension of connecting with the breath, of linking with the breath, of staying with the breath, staying with the primary focus, staying with whatever is present, knowing what's present, labeling it. Those are all active, we might say, uh, aspects of mindfulness that are linked with that doing that I was mentioning. But there's also the receptive dimension of doing, where we let go of the labeling, we let go of the trying to connect with the object. I might be with my breath and be pretty stable, and I just let the attention to the sensations be more receptive, or I'm just noticing body sensations. And there's a way I can really let go of the doing and just receive, or if I'm outside hearing the sounds of the birds, I can just let the sounds be there. I don't have to do anything, you know, once I'm being present. So there's, there's that receptive, non-doing aspect of mindfulness. Uh, Gil Fronsdell, a colleague who is also at Spirit Rock and teaches in, uh, uh, at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, he says these two aspects of mindfulness 
are like what we do when we're canoeing or kayaking. The active part is paddling and the receptive aspect is floating. Right? You have to have both. If you only paddle, you don't just get to enjoy stopping and being present with the water and letting go of the effort and just float and be carried away by the water. And, and yet you don't get there without the paddling. And so that really points to what we might, might call a kind of uh, balance of the doing and the not doing. It's really pointed to in the practice. And that comes up also in the metaphor of the lute, that we want to see, are we too tight or are we too loose? Or is there just the right, right amount of uh, care given to the stringed instrument so that the sound is optimal? We could say that's very similar for our meditation. Am I too tight? Am I too loose? So all, all of these are pointing to ways that we might practice. We might ask, am I too tight or too loose? And very, very helpful at the beginning of a session. If I generally have tendencies to be too loose, I might say, let me really keep attending, keep being mindful. Maybe I use the labeling a little more actively. If I'm too tight chronically, then I might say, can I relax? have my effort be a little bit less effortful, and so forth. So this, these all can, can point to our practice. And it also points to the importance of knowing our own tendencies around issues like tightness, looseness, uh, level of effort, style of effort, you know, really to know how one is. And again, very helpful over time if we're continually making intentions to be more active, to do, to label more, to be a little more vigilant, or on the other hand, to be more receptive, to listen. And we can, again, the, we, that, you know, that um, example points to ways that we can do that in other settings, listening to music, listening to the wind. We can explore that quality of receptivity listening to others, being willing to listen without interrupting or intervening. Can I, can I really have that receptive uh, quality? And then the, uh, the third area that I mentioned, I want to go into a little more depth on. This is the looking into the nature of the doer and our own tendencies, if they're there, to identify as a doer. And I mentioned that I think these are very strong. And so looking into the nature of the doer is one of the ways that we look into the conditioning around the nature of the self. It's one of the ways that we explore the teachings of anatta or not self, or what is my experience when my conditioning around a self isn't there in the usual way. And so I, I find that uh, exploring the conditioning around the doer is uh, very important. And I've, I've heard from a number of people I work with that it's been very helpful for them to look into their, their own conditioning as doers 
and all the various manifestations of that. Because I think, again, I think it's very, very uh, significant conditioning in the United States, in much of Western culture. I think it probably differs in different countries, but it's, um, it's, I know that it's, it was very, very strong conditioning for me. I was really conditioned to be a doer and if at all possible, a very good doer. I got rewarded to be a doer, right? Many of us have been rewarded for doing things well. And of course, doing is important. I'm not trying to say, you know, doing is bad, the conditioning is crazy or whatever, but it's, it's, um, what should I say? It tends to be strong and at times we might say overdone, right? And, um, yeah, just to say that it's strong, it's, it's very, it's very strong conditioning. And so, you know, I mentioned also that there, there are significant uh, gender dimensions to that conditioning, uh, that the conditioning about being a doer, uh, will look differently, uh, according to gender conditioning for men and women. Often, sometimes the conditioning around doer can be stronger for men, but not necessarily. And then there, there, there are, again, many, for, many forms of doing. Uh, it can be uh, very much connected with a sense of time, with a sense of efficiency, being busy, doing a lot, um, you know, can be, can be linked with issues of control, right? I want, you know, I want my doing to, uh, be connected with control. Um, and so all, all of these are there. We can also see how it's connected with time and how many of us are very, very, uh, active in our doing so that we can, we think, get to not doing and relax and get to, you know, we do, we do, we do, we do. So we get to stop doing and relax somehow or do what we think is important. And yet it doesn't, we can see quite easily that it's um, often a kind of a setup. You can see it's very, very active with uh, work and something like retirement that, uh, People work and work and work so they can get to retirement. And it's very common that people uh, don't know what they want to do when they retire, right? Or it's very common. And uh, um, I remember asking people when I, when I taught uh, at universities, I would sometimes ask people who were seniors in college, uh, how many of you... Uh, know what you'd really, really like to do. And then I would ask, how many of you think you can get a job doing what you really, really want to do? And about 20% of the people raised their hands. It's um, tragic in a way, right? And then we can ask the question, how many of those people after whatever, 30, 40, or more years of work even remember what they want to do. So there's a kind of a, almost like a treadmill where people are doing, 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 so they can stop doing. But then when they stop doing, they're either exhausted or they don't know what they want to do. And I've 
talked with many people who are retired who get very nervous about not doing and try to find something to do. And again, we find this sometimes when we go on vacations or when we, on a given day, don't have so much to do. We get nervous by uh, not doing. How many can relate to some of what I've just mentioned? You know, can, can find this in your own experience. Yeah, yeah I think very, uh, very, very common. So the doing is related to time. And um, again, this isn't to say that doing a lot is necessarily a problem or necessarily oriented towards the future. We can be very, very active and be very, very full and present. That's very, very possible. It can be harder, but so, and of course, there are many, many benefits of all the doing. We're just, but I'm just trying to look into that conditioning. Do we have, with our doing, a sense of identity? I'm a doer. I mentioned last time the idea of going to a party. And a typical question that someone will ask you, the first question when they meet, meet you is, what do you do? Again, fascinating that that's there. You know, and... Uh, Again, yeah, we, may, we may feel good, we may not feel good about giving an answer to that. You know, to what extent connected with my doing, um, am I afraid of stopping the doing because then I don't know who I am? Again, I mentioned that in relationship to retirement, but that can be there in daily life as well. And so again, this is really to see what our own patterns are. And then again, we can sometimes notice the patterns when we uh, have a time when we stop doing or when we have thinking about the future in relationship uh, to the doing. And I mentioned how I noticed in myself, in relation to my retreat, even uh, meditating, that I had a kind of limiting belief, I need to keep doing something in meditation, right? That I, when I tried to work with the instruction to let go of everything, including meditating at all, I found I had some resistance. I don't know if being a teacher means that one has been a good meditative doer, Perhaps, right? I've been a good meditative doer and I get rewarded by being asked to be a teacher, right? Something like that. But it's been interesting to look at, is there a limiting belief in meditation or in broader life that I need, that I need to keep doing? That I can't, I can't stop doing? You know, and how much does that limiting belief maybe come from childhood? Messages from parents, messages from the family, messages from the culture, you know, don't be lazy, right? Keep doing something, you know, and so forth. So this was, uh, this was some of what we explored and some other ways of really uh, seeing that kind of uh, conditioning around being a doer and looking at that, looking at that more carefully, and you know the different ways we can practice. Watch 
the, the doing mind, watch the futurizing, watch what happens when we stop doing or we're not doing or we're contemplating uh, not, not doing. Watch the mind maybe that wants to quote-unquote fix things. You know, watch that. Again, a lot of this can be helpful, but can be, uh, can be very conditioned. And on the other side, I think I mentioned last time a very helpful concept that I learned from one of my uh, teachers uh, who is named John Eisman, who's a teacher in the Hakomi approach to body-based psychotherapy. And he had a concept called the organic impulse, which is about, he, he was saying that if you really look carefully moment to moment and you go beneath the conditioning, you can see something often very rooted in the body that is like one's healthy impulse in the moment, right? Like I want to, I want to move or I want to, um, I'm hungry, you know, and it's coming more out of something authentic. And can one keep on uh, looking at that? Uh, and we can also look for the ways of doing things in which there's not really a sense of doer, not self-consciousness. One of the areas that I think is very instructive is what uh, the Hungarian uh, psychologist Csikszentmihalyi calls the flow experience, which I like to talk about at times. How many of you know about the flow experience? I've heard that concept. I think it's pretty out there in the culture. It's that sense of being fully immersed in an activity without self-consciousness, without self-image, and there's a sense of flow, full immersion, almost like effortless. And yet there can be a lot of doing, but it's a kind of effortless doing. And that is, you know, uh, people especially ex might experience this uh, being with people they're very close to, being with the earth, uh, creative activities, music, art. One would be in the flow, almost like taken over by the activity. Very beautiful. And I think that actually points to some of what I'm going to point to in a moment as this aspect of doing that comes out of non-doing. I think the flow experience is very much a taste of that and something we can explore. So this last area that I want to mention, and then we'll open things up to discussion, is uh, the aspiration in a way to go beyond ordinary doing and even go beyond the balancing of doing and not doing that we find in meditation. And this is a more advanced state or advanced level of spiritual practice, we might say, where the doing comes out of a more fundamental not doing. And I want to look at two expressions of this. And this is also very much something that, you know, I was exploring in my own retreat in February. And it's very interesting. So I want to look at this in two contexts. One of them is the Taoist tradition. The other one are some things that one can find in Buddhist tradition. And in the Taoist tradition, there's the pretty well-known concept of Wu Wei. It's spelled W-U, usually a hyphen, W-E-I. 
and usually translated as non-action. It also, I think, literally could be translated as non-exertion or effortless action. So, and it's actually the aspiration of the practicing Taoist, particularly as we find the Taoist in the uh, ancient teachings from uh, Lao Tzu and uh, Chuangzi, you know, which all occurred well over 2,000 years ago. And so I wanted to read uh, just a few passages. This is, these are, I wanna, I'll read two passages from the teachings of uh, Lao Tzu. This is called the, from the text called the Tao Te Ching. Some of you probably have, have read this. So here's the first passage. The Tao, which is, again, could be set, taken as a word for the sacred, the Tao invariably takes no action, and yet there is nothing left undone. So these are going to appear paradoxical, so don't look for usual logical coherence, okay? That's the equivalent of a trigger warning. <laughs> don't look for complete logical coherence here. Okay. Um, and here's, uh, this is also from the Lao, Tzu, Lao Tzu's text, the Tao Te Ching. And listen again, you can listen for the paradox. The pursuit of learning is to increase learning day after day. The pursuit of Tao is to decrease it day after day. It is to decrease and further decrease until one reaches the point of taking no action. No action is undertaken, and yet nothing is left undone. I don't expect that to be completely clear. <laughs> okay, here are a few from uh, Chuang Tzu, and he gives some, some nice examples. So here's one. This is uh, called action and non-action. The non-action, the Wu Wei of the wise person is not inaction. It is not studied. It is not shaken by anything. The sage is quiet because not moved, not because one wills to be quiet. Still water is like glass. You can look in it and see the bristles on your chin. It is a perfect level. A carpenter could use it. If water is so clear, so level, how much more the human spirit? The heart of the wise person is tranquil. It is the mirror of heaven and earth, the glass of everything. Emptiness, stillness, tranquility, tastelessness, silence, non-action, this is the level of heaven and earth. This is perfect Tao. Wise ones find here their resting places. Resting, they are empty. From emptiness comes the unconditioned. From this, the conditioned, the individual things. So from the sage's emptiness, stillness arises. From stillness, action. From action, attainment. From their stillness comes their non-action, which is also action, and is therefore their attainment. For stillness is joy. Joy is free from care, fruitful in long years. Joy does all things without concern. For emptiness, 
stillness, tranquility, tastelessness, silence, and non-action are the roots of all things. And then a further example from the Buddhist tradition, I think the point here, if I can give a little bit of explanation, is that at this really deepest level of our practice, we might say, one is expressing awakening in a spontaneous way, in a spontaneous, creative, but also, in a sense, uh, non-conceptual way, if that, if that helps at all. And again, I think this can be experienced sometimes if we think of some of those flow experiences. Or think of the, uh, again, an artist. Things might be coming through, and at certain points there's just this deep level, and artists might feel like they're almost uh, expressing something very, very very deep. And in some of the examples of Chuangzu, one of the examples, uh, one of the stories he talks, talks about a wood carver who before carving a piece of wood prepares for seven days and meditates and fasts. And then, you know, uh, in that process goes in a very deep state to the woods, finds the right piece of wood. And um, finally, with all this preparation, uh, feels completely empty and in that state carves the wood. Right? So it's something, it's something like that. Um, so there, there's a sense of intuitive. And I think there are passages from the Buddha, even the one that I gave, you know, where it says, you know, um, all is impermanent. Uh, Continue your practice with continual care would be another translation. And the care is something that's very intuitive. It becomes who we are. And so I, I'm not expecting to be completely clear and completely communicative of this because there's a sense that it's pointing to something that isn't easily experienceable. And so it's more like that so-called finger pointing to the moon as opposed to me saying something and you just say, yeah, okay, no. So it uh, has a mysterious aspect. And so one of the Buddhist traditions that expresses this is a tradition that I've trained in quite a bit, which is the uh, Dzogchen tradition from uh, Tibetan practice, in which the initial practice is really to contact what we might call awakened non-dual awareness. And as one stabilizes more in that, there can be a further instruction to let go even of the doing, even of the intentionality, and move toward where, towards where one's very being expresses awakening, expresses what sometimes is called a primordial wisdom. And I'll just read a few passages here, and again, think, you know, consider these as the pointing. Awakened mind, these are, these are the first ones I'll give are from Longchenpa, who I read last time from the 14th century. 
Awakened mind is by nature primordially pure. There is nothing to discard or adopt, nothing that comes or goes, nothing to achieve by trying. Let your mind and body relax deeply in a carefree state with an easygoing attitude like a person who has nothing to do. Completely let go within the expanse that entails no conceptualization whatsoever. Another passage. Given awareness, this is a kind of a deep awareness, which is not cultivated in meditation and in which nothing is discarded or adopted. If you meditate again and again, you will see that there is nothing to cultivate in meditation. Nothing to cultivate in meditation. This is the meditation of omnipresent awareness. And then out of that comes the doing. Another text, freedom is not due to effort. Rather, one abides timelessly in freedom. So I offer those as, as pointers. And I want to finish by giving what we might call a kind of a sequential model of our practice that ends with what I just described, but that goes through a number of stages. And I identified six stages. We can see where we are without trying to rush things or get to where we're not. But six ways of training or six stages of training with this question of doing and not doing. Okay? And so, or maybe these are, well, they're actually six stages of letting go of habitual doing. The first stage is when, in our practice, we let go of our habitual thinking. You know, we say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm not going to think all the time. I'm going to notice when I'm thinking and let go of it. And this is often what we do right at the beginning of practice, certainly crucial in my practice, starting practice as a student, thinking a lot. I had to let go of thinking. So this is letting go. This is sort of a first stage of letting go of doing. And something that we continually return to. Again, letting go of doing when it's, or thinking when it's not appropriate. Or we might say of the compulsive or conditioned uh, thinking. And then a second stage related is when we let go of habitual patterns based on our mindfulness practice. We let go of reactivity, of continually grasping after things or pushing away things compulsively. And there is a way that we're letting go of, again, uh, ways that we, both in our thoughts and in our actions, are doing in a more habitual or compulsive way. That could, that's a sort of a second stage. And again, it's an ongoing part of our practice. Thirdly, I think we have more and more of what I was calling flow experiences, where there's a significant letting go of doing or of the, let's say, the intention to do, but the doing is happening by itself. You know, we're doing coming out of being present, not coming out of our compulsive doing, 
a sense of flow, a sense of freedom, a sense of aliveness can be there. And we may experience that more and more. Meditation opens us up to that. That's what I'm calling a third stage. A fourth stage occurs a little bit later in meditation. This is where we start letting go of the will and of intention. This can occur uh, actually early on in some ways, but it can occur later through what we sometimes call choiceless awareness, which I think many of us have experienced, particularly when the mind is pretty quiet and we just experience one thing after another happening. We're still tracking this. We're still, there's still a kind of meditative doing where I'm aware, oh, now there's this, now there's that, now there's a body sensation. Oh, a thought just came through. Oh, that was this kind of thought. Oh, that happened. Oh, I feel my left foot or, you know, whatever. And we can sometimes, when the mind is very, very quiet, we can stay in this choiceless awareness for a long time, sometimes for many minutes at a time, sometimes in retreat, even for have this be the primary experience for hours or days where we're primarily just experiencing the flow of experience. It can be very freeing and liberating. It opens us up actually into what we sometimes call emptiness, which is that things are just occurring without being conceptualized, without being even necessarily labeled. And yet we're aware of the process, you know, um, so that's what I'm calling a fourth stage where we're letting go of will. These are, that would be a more advanced stage of meditation. A fifth and yet further advanced station, uh, stage of meditation would be where we, in a sense, let go of all meditating. We let go of mindfulness and we're just actually uh, aware of awareness. We become aware of awareness. We let go of being mindful of this or that. We let go of loving kindness. We let go of our different practices. And we start with being aware of awareness. And that may open up just to a kind of awareness of awareness, which is there. And there's no distinction between myself and what I'm aware of. We sometimes call that awakened awareness, a kind of non-dual awareness. I'm labeling that as a fifth stage. That's a, definitely an advanced stage in meditation. And that can, uh, we can open up to that. Some approaches take this as the end point, but I think there is this sixth stage, which is what I was just referring to, uh, which is even beyond that non-dual awakened awareness, which often has some degree of intentionality and even that awareness of awareness. And this is just the spont where we are at the spontaneous expression of that full awareness. Again, as you know, as we may see it understood in, for example, in the two traditions I named, the the uh the Taoist approach of Wu Wei and then the what I found in the uh um the Dzogchen tradition. So All I would say to that is see which of those resonate and sort of where, which are familiar to me. Which, which of these uh, stages, if we use that word, 
of looking at doing and not doing do I find myself at? And all we want to do is take the next step. Keep the practice going, keep exploring, because there's a way in which uh, one stage very naturally will open up to the next one. And so where do I locate myself? How do I want to practice? Keep taking the next step until there is no next step. And you've stopped walking in one sense, but you're still walking. So I'm not expecting that to be clear for you or for me. And as I sometimes say, as a teacher, uh, I try to let, and then to some extent, the teachings come through me. And sometimes I say to myself, you should listen to what that guy is saying and follow his guidance, <laughs> right? Because sometimes that, uh, sometimes that, that flow comes through and I can go, oh, ooh, where did that come from? Okay. Okay. That's good. Anyway, so I'll just, I'll just, uh, end with those, uh, those pointers both to, uh, to you and to me. Okay. So let's, let's pause for a moment now and just uh, see what may have resonated or see where there may be some, some questions to take about a 30 seconds or a minute just to see what may have resonated with you and if you have some something either to share or some some question And I'll also invite you to remember if you explored this theme of doing and not doing in the last week, what some of your discoveries, insights, uh, questions might, might have been. All right. Are we ready to take some questions? Yeah, let's just get, let me just give a little more silent time. Great. Okay. Yeah. I see we have, uh, you can either do again, do raised hand, the raised hand function, which you get to under the participants, uh, or participants area at the bottom of most screens, or you can also communicate something in the chat. And, uh, sometimes we've also been, uh, told, and I think I mentioned this, uh, letting people raise their hand and you can sort of scan around uh, the screens. Okay. Does that work for you? Yep, sounds good. Okay, great. All right, uh, Liz, you were the first to raise your hand. Hi, Liz. Hi, Donald. Welcome back. Thank um, you. Thank you again. Thank you again for this talk. Um, 
it's taken me 25 years to get to the point of what you have spoken about. And last June on a silent home retreat, it, I want to say it hit or it opened of the non-doing. 25 years old. <laughs> Thank God I lived long enough to see it. And I would love it if you would do a long retreat on this. Well, it would be great. Well. I don't know if this is concentration practice or what you would call it. Uh, um, would you? I don't know if you do, would you call this concentration practice. And the other thing that came to me is that um, again, yes, it's the finger pointing at the moon. I, I got to that before you mentioned it for beginners. But um, what in myself, because I've been, I don't do a daily meditation. I go on retreats, and my life is immersed in the Dharma. Um, but it's gotten, it got to a point after 25 years recently that there is a trust and a faith in the practice and in myself. Yeah. So for me, looking at that, that's, that's the bottom line. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I can't let go unless I have that trust and the faith, yeah. which I have now after 25 years. Yeah, yeah, great points. Um, I like the idea of a retreat emphasizing these themes, and you know, I, I think it would. Uh, the theme really could come up in every kind of practice we do: concentration, of course, <coughs> mindfulness. But not, not in a half an hour. Hmm. What's that? Sorry, I didn't hear what you just not said. Not in a half an hour. Not in a half an hour of practice. Uh, <clears throat> I think one can emphasize that however amount of practice one does, uh, the theme, because like I said, there are many entry points, and some of them are just looking, what's the balance of doing and not doing? So I, I like your idea about a retreat emphasizing the theme. And then I think your point about trust or faith is a very important one that uh, we may need some sense of... Uh, almost like trusting our minds, trusting awareness, trusting the process, trusting the practice in order to say, yeah, I'm willing to let go or let me let go of my doing or let me just uh, open in ways I haven't opened. So I think that's that's an important, very important point. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. So trust and faith in the practice and trust and faith in myself. In oneself, yeah. Um, we might say even trust in my mind, my awareness, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, Victoria, would you like to unmute? Yes, hi, Donald. Hello. Thank you, that was a great talk. Um, so I wanted to, um, just just first, I wanted to ask the, the sixth stage um is that sort of the ultimate non-doing when it's just a the spontaneous expression of the like the Wu Wei? Is that would you call that sort of the, the end point where we reach the non-doing? Yeah, that's how I was. That's how I was framing it. Okay, um, and so I wanted to um, 
as you know, I'm a I'm a violinist, so I resonated last week a lot with the the um, too tightly tuned or too loosely tuned strings. Yeah. Um, and um, today, I uh, when you talked about the flow, um, I haven't studied it scientifically, but of course I've heard about it. It's sort of a buzzword, um, and I I realize that when I'm um, that, that I often get into that state when I'm when I'm practicing or or when I'm performing yeah, certainly. Yeah. Um, but one thing that, that I've noticed, and I wondered if you could comment on it, is that at, at precisely the moment when I realize that. I'm in the flow. Um, I fall out of it, and and I and there's usually a major disaster, like like um, everything falls to pieces, and, and things that were easy before suddenly just everything like disintegrates on the spot. It's sort of like once when I was skiing, um, I was going down a big mountain, and I thought, "Wow, I'm going you know 100 miles an hour. This is amazing." And at that moment, I fell. Yeah. Can you speak to that a little bit about the, like, and, and maybe how to, um, in, in our general practice, how to avoid those sort of um, catastrophes from occurring? Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. Well, you know, at that moment, basically the, what we're calling the flow uh, doesn't involve uh, self-consciousness or, um, you know, or even noticing how things were. You know, it, it's like... Um, I don't know how many people here are uh, NBA fans, uh, National Basketball Association, but there's uh, some of you may remember uh, in one of the NBA finals, Michael Jordan was playing. And in the first half, he scored. He, he, in, in sports, they have the phrase in the zone, which is very similar to in the flow. They have that phrase in the zone. Actually, one of my friends uh, Andy Andrew Cooper wrote a whole book called Playing in the Zone, which has a lot of the great material. And so Michael Jordan was in the zone. He had seven straight three-pointers. After the seventh, he walked by the scorer's table and he went like this, meaning like, it's not me. At that point, he was out of the zone. He missed his next shot. <laughs> Right, and so there's something there's something like that uh, in the experience, and I think uh, you know maybe mindfulness could catch that thought developing early, so that it actually doesn't derail you. That that would be one way to work with it. That you have enough mindfulness, but you can't really plan for it because you're in the flow. You're in the flow. But if you have enough baseline mindfulness, maybe you notice that. And you just say, you know, just in a split second, no, I'm not going there, right? Mm -hmm. That that could possibly work. But otherwise, um, you know, we go in and out of the flow. So the main thing is once you're out of it, see if you can invite going back in it. So as a regular, like like a, a kind of um, almost like a muscle training to to uh, to prevent things like that, is, there, is it just... Um, you know, mindfulness training, essentially mindfulness practice. I'll just keep doing more, but I, I, I wouldn't put too much energy in trying to prevent it. Just keep with your practice. It'll happen sometimes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Um, now I'd like uh, to do a question from the chat. 
Okay. That's all right. Yeah, thanks, um, Victoria. Yeah. Uh, is re reactivity an extreme form of doing? Um, and how does this relate to the jhana states? Okay. Is the question. Um, yeah, interesting. The um, I'm using reactivity in a more kind of technical sense as meaning that kind of, I, I use words like compulsive and habitual ways that we grab hold or push away. That's what I mean by reactivity. And to the extent that, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, we're getting into interesting territory here because the question is to what extent is a lot of our doing almost unconscious or based on habitual patterns beneath the level of awareness? So. To that extent, uh, a lot of our reactivity might be um, might be a form of doing. If I am reactive, let's say every time someone uh, I don't know might be that every time someone interrupts me, I become very reactive, right? And again, one can be reactive when there are things that one actually that are happening that are not okay. Right? So I'm not. I'm not saying that reactivity is simply totally off. One can be reactive, and that reactivity can still have some discernment in it. You know, so maybe I'm reactive every time someone uh, interrupts me, and it's not okay for that person necessarily to keep interrupting me or others to interrupt me, but there's a kind of doing that's just habitual. So that could be, that could be a form of doing, and maybe we... Uh, when we explore that that reactivity, maybe we come out of that so that we can actually have our, you know, I, I use the language, can I have a response to the interruption rather than being reactive? And maybe I say with skillful speech, you know, uh, in a certain setting, you know, I'm, I'm not quite finished. I'd really like to continue. And But we say it without being judgmental, let's say. That, anyway, a lot of that's going to depend on the context. And then in terms of the jhanas, uh, that's a whole big topic. Um, so some of you know and have experienced the jhanas and some not. So I think I'll just be very brief. The jhanas are states of deep, concentrative absorption, typically with one object. And they're under, actually understood in different ways by different teachers and approaches. There's not a consensus about what it means. But they're basically states of deep concentration. So two comments. Uh, one is that often the uh, development of, the, of, of the, 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 what, the being able to access these deep states often depends on really focused concentration, which can involve a lot of doing, you know, keeping on coming back. Uh, concentration can involve a lot of doing, and skillful concentration also involves a lot of relaxation. Actually, the essence of concentration is relaxation. So skillful concentration involves both doing and not doing, much like the other forms of meditation. And then, you know, then as if, the, if one gets to this deep state called jhana, then also it's very important to let go of most of one's doing at that point. And, and there's a way that the mind has its own, almost its own uh, 
way that it proceeds. Yeah. I mean, another way of saying it is that is that at deeper, at very deep meditative states, uh, whether they're related to concentration or basic awareness, the one goes into some of the very primal territory of the nature of the mind, and it has its own, uh, almost its own nature and rhythm. And then one, in a sense, uh, one's usual doing gets out of the way. So again, that's going to be a little bit mysterious answer unless you're familiar with some of those territories. So please, uh, I think we have Ed now. Yes. Hello, Donald. Hi. Hey, I um, I wanted to uh, ask about something that I, I think I have heard, read, or I have read, where there's a lot of an instruction and then in the body, and another instruction in the body. And a lot of this um, is a more mental, more uh, concentration in that way. And I wanted to see if you had anything to say about um, having these practices really felt in the body oh. as part of the practice. Yeah, yeah, it's it's actually very valuable, um, and it's not always easy to do a lot of our practices in an embodied way, and we can we can do that in um, you know in just being with the breath. Can I really be with the the breath really fully? Um, can I experience the breath in the body uh, very, very fully? Or it might be the core mindfulness instructions like what I gave earlier are to, for example, when I'm feeling, let's say, anger. Very, very crucial to feel the emotion, but also can I see what, how the anger expresses itself in my body? And can I really know uh, that experience? So again, I, I sometimes recommend what I sometimes call channel changing. Go to the body for 30 seconds or a minute. If, let's say you have five minutes of anger. Feel the anger in the body for a minute. Then switch to what's it feel like in the emotional energy. Then notice what's my storyline. Just notice that for a while. One has to be somewhat quiet to do that. Uh, and... In a similar way, one can look at different patterns. You know, when I notice, okay, right now I really feel in a doing mode, you know, and what's my experience? Really what we're saying is what's my experience in all the parameters of my experience? I really feel in a doing mode. What's my body like now? Am I kind of somewhat tightly wound? What's my experience of my body? Um, one of the ways that I explore this, when I teach on the judgmental mind, for example, uh, I invite people to look at their main patterns of being judgmental. And very, very, it's been very crucial for me and others to see what does that feel like, like when I'm in, when I'm really going through an experience of being very judgmental, let's say, of myself. Let me experience what it's like in the body. Something like the judgmental mind typically comes as something verbal. Can I look and see what it feels like in the body? Okay, like in my own experience, I noticed, oh, when I'm judgmental of myself, my chest is caved in a little bit. My hands are often a little bit clenched and tight. And studying it like that 
let me be able to notice, oh, in that form of being judgmental, here's how my body is. And that sometimes permitted me, just in the ordinary flow of experience, to notice my hands or my chest going into those forms when I wasn't really aware of being judgmental. I was just caught in something. I noticed my body first. And that leads me to actually bring mindfulness to it. Oh, I'm judgmental. I noticed my body first because I've done that practice before of really giving attention to how this particular experience manifests in the body. So we can do it with being judgmental. We can do it with these modes of doing. We can do it with anxiety. Uh, we can do it with joy. <clears throat> what does joy feel like in the body, right? And so it can really uh, be helpful in so many ways. Does that, does that get at it, Ed? That's, yeah, that's perfect. That's, um, that's exactly what I was um, wanting to to hear about. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thanks, Ed. Uh, Tolan, how are we? Do we have any more material in the chat? We have, um, okay, we have one, just one more question. Yeah. Why don't we just end with it? Well, then this will be the last one. And this is an easy one, actually. So um, they just, um, they're asking you for you to, they're asking you for to, re to repeat the sentence quoted from the Tao Te Ching that you read oh. about doing and not doing. Oh, that was easy. The was... one prior to the one about pursuit of learning, the other one, the first okay. one you read. Yeah, I was being a little playful. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, this is, uh, let's see, in the Tao Te Ching. This is number 37. The other one, the one about the pursuit of learning, if you want to look it up, was number 48. Okay, so this is 37. Tao, spelled, usually spelled T-A-O, invariably takes no action, and yet there is nothing left undone. Tao invariably takes no action, and yet there is nothing left undone. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Tolan. Thanks, everyone. And let's close with two things. First, uh, I'm not going to be here next week. Sylvia will be. But how many of you would you know still like to look for the next week at uh, doing and not doing? How many actually have interest in continuing the inquiry? So take a moment and just take 30 seconds, say, how might I do this? And how might I remember to bring up this theme? You know, maybe an intention first thing in the morning. Take 30 seconds for yourself about how you can keep this going. And then we'll finish with our dedication of merit, very traditional practice. May our practice, our inquiry into doing and not doing and meditation and daily life, may this be a benefit to ourselves, to those in our lives. 
may it be, may it be a benefit beyond our own circles, ultimately going to all beings of which we are part. So thanks everyone and uh, please say hi to Sylvia. She'll be very delighted next time and um, hopefully I'll see you in three weeks and um, don't do too much. <laughs> Enjoy the next period. So I'll do my, my, my Zoom hello, goodbye. <laughs> Thank you. Till next time. You can unmute everyone, Tolan. Yeah. Thanks, Donald. Thank, Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Donald. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Till next time. Till next time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.